I welcome Wheatland family. Um, we know, and we're pretty sure you've been listening to our other podcast, which is the Cross Reference podcast, where we talk through uh, the pulpit and what our pastors are doing, particularly what Luke is doing in the sermons and where he's taking the church. This is the second set. We did one of these series already on race. And I believe, if I'm right, gentlemen, we solved all of the problems and answered all the questions mm-hmm. relative to that topic. Oh, yeah. In that They're... podcast. So we're, we're batting a thousand as of exactly. now. Exactly. So this is what we're officially calling at this point, uh, two pastors and a professor, in case you're unaware, Pastor Luke and Pastor Keith are um, our pastors here at Wheatland PCA, and I am a professor at Lancaster Bible College. So this is our conversation. And this one, we're tackling another unimportant, rather insignificant topic, um, yeah. that of gender. Yeah, this, so, it's the topic that everybody just has very little interest in. It garners yeah. no heat in uh, debates. It's just something we want to resurrect from the dustbin of conversation and try and really make it interesting. Yeah. And I I don't know if we can do it, but we figured we could solve this in the next 10 or 15 minutes. If we need more, we'll take it. But gentlemen, don't feel feel you have to drag it out. Exactly. We'll we'll be shortened to the point here. Shortened to the point. So this this, uh, podcast we're calling Gender and the Church. So we're looking at that topic, which of course is a rather large topic, gentlemen, um, to tackle something as large as gender. And it's mm-hmm. a topic probably we would not have um, had as a podcast maybe five years ago, six years ago. But now it's almost how can you not have a podcast and a conversation about gender? So right. why is this the issue? And we'll get into this in more detail in a minute. But why is why are we as, um, as a church tackling this issue at the moment? What's, what's the reason for doing this now? Yeah, I think... <clears throat> As much as we're joking about uh, we're going to f- fix all these issues in a matter of a quarter hour and and um, we're in four, even in four or five, whatever this gender and the church series turns out to be, how many episodes our podcast is when we joke about solving it in, in the matter of five podcasts, <laughs> what we're really saying is this is a large and uh, varied discussion that is happening in so many places. And, and what's interesting, I think, is that the church is not really having the discussion as much as people are having the discussion about the church and, mm. I, and gender. And so I think that's like, first of all, that's a really important reason for us to get together and to try and talk uh, about some of these things is there's lots of conversations about the church and gender, but are there conversations from within the church about the church and gender? And so I I think you're right, Dan, five years ago, uh, certainly 10 years ago, at least, this probably wouldn't have been uh, a topic on our podcast, but now it is, and for good reason. Um, there have been lots of heat and, and opinions and, um, we've experienced even, uh, confusion about who, what does Wheatland think about this? Whereas Mm. we would have thought, oh, it's pretty clear what Wheatland thought. We've experienced, uh, people ask, well, what does Wheatland think about this? And so, Mm. first of all, I think that's one of the big reasons why we're having it, but our approach our approach to it, I think, is something that we're really eager to share and to model um, in these podcasts as well. And so that's pretty important, too. I think the other 
reason is because no one is disconnected from gender. Hmm. I mean, this, this impacts and this impacts every single one of us. And so, so for that reason, hmm. this is an important thing to talk about and an important a uh, place to engage with people because we are all impacted there. There's some ideas that you can talk about and think, well, that doesn't really affect my life. That's not, that doesn't impact my life that much. Mm. Gender impacts every single one of us in different ways. This is not just a conversation or something to wrestle with. If you, if you're dealing with gender dysphoria, this is for every single one of us to think about what it mm. means to be male and female. Could it, could it be said that maybe one of the reasons why there's a lot of heat and less light here, Luke, as you mentioned, and Keith, the way you're saying this affects everybody is that maybe, as we joked in the beginning, the issue is very complex, but it's been oversimplified on mm. either side. And so yeah. once it gets oversimplified, there's a lot of yelling and a lot of nervousness right. without a chance to unpack why this is difficult. And in one sense, I'd like to say at the outset of this, what we discovered in the race conversation was more complex than the three of us could mm -hmm. manage. It's larger, mm -hmm. it's bigger. Yeah. I think we'd say the same thing about this one, wouldn't we? Yeah, I think that's right, Dan. Um, I really like uh, sort of <clears throat> acknowledging before you begin humility at mm. the subject and the topic and the scope of the, like as an educator, you're always, even when we talk about what we're doing here for adult ed or something, you, <laughs> I, I know in our conversation, well, what's the scope? What are you trying to do as we let, what is the scope? And so we want to acknowledge like right away that the scope of this is broad and mm. it is, it is, it is huge. And, but I think, one of the reasons when you talk about, I, I think what rings true when you talk about each side has oversimplified the matter, um, it's almost as if each side has issued their statements and these are the statements and you either um, grab this statement and get behind it and affirm it or you deny it. And um, I think we've thought about that like in in the context of a covenant community, in the context of a church family, statements are really helpful, but they don't end there, if that mm. makes sense. You, you mm. have to make a statement, but then the statement ought to invite a conversation, not, not inviting a conversation to where, well, everything, uh, all truth is, up. if you have a conversation, then all truth is up for grabs. That's not that's not the point of inviting a conversation, but statements aren't made to people. They're sort of made in the abstract and a covenant community, a church family is actually made up of people. And um, those people have ideas, but that you want to address, but they're also people as well. And so I think as we start the conversation, I think it's really important from a pastoral um framework to to locate the conversation in a community of people who've covenanted together to follow Jesus together and that mm -hmm. means that 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 this is our context we're we're not here making statements although we will make statements but we're making statements in a context of relationships and a, a complex web of relationships where sin has um intruded and and there's brokenness and there's also really good things happening as well, but it, it's, it's within the complex web of relationships of a local assembly that mm. our conversation in these podcasts is taking place. Mm. Yeah. We've often, I think, used statements as a way to not just build a boundary 
or create a boundary of ideas, but also create a boundary for people. And that we, we make a statement and we use that statement to keep people at arm's length. Um, and I, that seems like what we would hope to do is you can make statements, but all those things are done in the context of like Luke saying relationship or in, in particular, a local church. And they're all done because you have relationships and those relationships with people move you to consider ideas and address ideas and, po and, and then possibly make statements or, or talk through theology and doctrine so that it's, it's the people and the relationships that you have that drive you to consider and reflect ideas. It's not consider ideas, make statements about those, and now sort of pass them off to people and say, here, now you know what I think and what I believe. Now, now you have it. So don't come back and talk to me because I've made my statement now. And that's helpful to say this is a relational. I, I think one of the, I was talking with one of our gentlemen we used to work with as a, as a college who on race issues specifically, I may have brought, brought his name up, Jail Chambers, but he said, he said one of the problems that makes these issues problem difficult or complicated is that everyone's looking for someone to speak to the whole issue. Like, you know, I'm telling you this because this is true for America. This is true for men. This is true for and whether some of those need to be made, the point is when it becomes universal like that, it gets stripped out of the communities into which they're, they're being developed. And if we're saying this, we're not saying this as podcasts, like we're hoping that someone in California would get what we're talking about. Maybe they would, but this conversation is between people who are actually living together, who trust one another, who are wrestling through these things together. Mm -hmm. It's very different than saying, we're getting in line to give definitive statements about exactly how this is supposed to work yeah. you know, for gender conversations. That's yeah. a good thing to have, but that's not what we're doing. Yeah. And despite the fact that I'm looking at three talking heads on the <laughs> Zoom screen, this is not just about talking heads. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. so help, us, help us dig in a little further. So I, I really appreciate that framing because if, if what we're hoping to do is bring more light and less heat, yeah. I think it's a great thing for and I think we have to do that in community. Um, yeah. Hopefully our listeners who are here, and if there are people not at Wheatland, you'll give us a little leeway to understand yeah. that we're, we're, yeah. we're talking into a living community yeah. as we do this. Um, so that's one thing that I think is unique that's probably not happening as often. Mm -hmm. um, could we also speak, pastors, to the approach you want to take? Like what's bounding yeah. this? I, I've used this metaphor before, and I'm going to use it here again. Hopefully it's helpful. Is that if you have a pair of parentheses, um, those pair of parentheses sort of give us a lot of room between them to move. But if you get outside the parentheses, you've gone beyond what we really intend you to do. Mm -hmm. Some outer boundaries that we don't want to get beyond. And there's a wide space in between where we can disagree and wrestle through things. Yeah. So what's, what's our sort of boundaries that we're yeah. marking out as we walk through this? I, I mean, I think I could start it by um, sort of reflecting on our own place in um the landscape of of church life uh church life or religious life so we're a presbyterian mm. church in america congregation and that means we have creedal we're, we're a creedal church we have creeds and confessions that are parentheses if you want to think of it that way for us um and so there's a denominational aspect to this that we're going to get into a little bit later in the podcast series about uh, some statements and some pa uh, one paper in particular. It's a report um, that a committee did on human sexuality that they presented to our 
denomination at its at its most recent general assembly that was um, received and adopted um, in our denomination. But I, I I think like more particular to where we find ourselves this morning in this conversation is that we are talking to a congregation who we know are dealing with um, sexual issues, um, same-sex attraction, gender identity issues. We are talking to brothers and sisters who we know are, these are not abstractions. They are, um, they are a part of their everyday consciousness and their everyday existence. And so for, for us, I think I sort of see it, and this, some of this comes out of the language of the paper that um, this committee wrote for our denomination, is there's a pastoral task, I think, that's ahead of us, and that is shepherding, and in this conversation, talking to real people with real struggles. And there's also, along with that, what we've outlined as the apologetic task of it. And that's sort of like, if you think of it, we were talking about statements and conversations. I think that's sort of how the pastoral task and the apologetic task can kind of be uh, thought of as the parentheses from which we're working. You, you know, there's the statements and then there's the conversations and you can't just do an apologetic for human sexuality based on the scriptures without entering into the pastoral task, which is conversation and shepherding of those who are in, to whom the statements are made. So is that, does that sort of help lay some groundwork? Maybe I'm missing something. No, I, I think that's great. I, I, I had thought in slightly different terms about it, but I think it, it's more relational in that regard for people expectations to say, because we are who we are, there are going to be some immovable truths. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that's not the end of the story. The other part of the story is Christ always did it in conversation. He didn't uh, deliver papers and, uh, and well-published books. He yeah. did it in dialogue. So He came think, eating and drinking, right. <laughs> which is <laughs> that's dialogical in a sense. Dialogical in its life, yeah. And I don't know, exactly. Keith, if you felt you want to add to that. Yeah, I think that's why our mission statement says Part of it is to lovingly confront our generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we, if all we think about is the apologetic task, we tend to confront our generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we, if we just are overly concerned about being pastoral and scared of the apologetic, then uh, we might just be loving with our generation or some distorted view of loving with our generation. And so that's why. I've always appreciated our church's mission to lovingly confront because in a sense that is describing this pastoral and apologetic task, both for people inside our congregation and, and outside of our mm. congregation. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I think sometimes we hear our mission statement, and this is germane, uh, I'm trying not to get too far afield, uh, lovingly confronting this generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes we think at that we think of that as an external activity that we're confronting this generation as sort of people who are not part of our covenant community. But actually, I think what we're doing with this podcast and these conversations 
is we're confronting our own selves. We're confronting our own people with mm. lovingly with the gospel of Jesus Christ in this, because I, th I think that's the other reason why we're doing this podcast, Dan. And I, I know certainly why um, we, we talked about doing it is that we know that there are lots of messages not just outside of the church, but inside of the church, because we all have access to all sorts of um, sources now, whether it's the internet or social media, whatever, um, you know, all, all sorts of places that we're hearing things that um, our task as pastors, that task to lovingly confront this generation actually includes our own hearts and our own people's hearts. It's not simply an external. I was having lunch with a guy who was new to the church, uh, I don't know, within the last year. And he had pointed that out. And I had never, I mean, to my shame, I had never thought of that. I, I had sort of internalized that mission statement merely as external. Mm. Because like when you think about mission, you think about going out you know, so often, but he had sort of turned it around and said, no, this, this is for us as well. And I thought that was really helpful. Well, we are part of this generation. We're part of this culture. And right. I think what that says is that these, these ideas, the, the ideas of our culture have seeped into the way we think, and we need to confront one another, which isn't a negative word necessarily. But if we're going to rally around our shared beliefs, we have to confirm what they are. We have to articulate them. Mm -hmm. I, I actually, in confront confrontation, is as in the best possible light. I only say Sunday Sunday worship off times as me confronting my brothers and sisters with worship. Like I'm hearing them worship, mm -hmm. and that's teaching me to worship better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't, and I think even confront can come across in this culture with a with a bad bad connotations. But that's not necessarily yeah. the case here. This is relational. Yeah, yeah exactly. In light of that, I, one of the things I, I think in that is the idea that if we have this, and you say statements on the one side conversations, I think it's a good way to phrase that, that there are there is this, and we want to confirm this throughout, that in this space between our theological convictions on the one side and love and conversation on the other, that that space is bounded by something that is hard and fast. Um, mm -hmm. And we've got to figure out what that is, because Paul was not writing to the 21st century, neither was Christ speaking to it, mm -hmm. neither was Peter. So we've got to sort of figure out what those uncompromisables are. And I, and I think from the outside, it's important to say that's difficult sometimes. Sometimes it's not difficult, but yeah. sometimes it is. But it's essential work to do also. So how, yeah. how do we do that? How, what, what are not, not maybe what are the conclusions we're going to draw, but how, how do we find those? How do we say, hey, we may fight through it, but here's where we've got to draw a line. This is yeah. where. Because I think yeah. that's hard work that people may not Well, yeah, and understand. I think... Yeah, and I think that comes back, and I'll let Keith weigh in on this too, but I think that comes back to remembering um, who we are mm. um, and, and what, what our commitments are. And I think the first thing that we have to be just forthright with as we have these conversations is that we submit all of our thinking to the authority of the scriptures. Yeah, and. Yeah. And, um, and I, as we, as I was, I think maybe at, when we were kind of talking about these podcasts and trying to put them together, um, there's a way that you could hear that, oh, well, we believe in the authority of scripture. And there's a way that you could receive that statement and it, and you think, oh, well, you're just mindless, you know, you're, you, you just receive 
uh, what somebody has said and you haven't mm. thought for yourself and all of that. But what we're saying there is, is far more than just blind acceptance of, of some old, musty, crusty dogmas that have mm. been kicked around in history and, and we're really past that. But what we're saying is we believe with all of our hearts and souls and mind and strength that the world that God ordered and the way in which God ordered the world is what promotes human flourishing right, right. because it is allegiance to the design and to the one who designed it. Mm. Um, so I, I, I feel like, yes, it's the, we, we are consciously starting under the authority of scriptures, but we're starting there because we've been convinced by the Holy Spirit and by other uh, truths upon truths and experience. But you know, we 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 admit that our convictions here have been convinced to us by the Holy Spirit that what is described in the scriptures is human flourishing, mm. and that there is a story that. Uh, might contradict some of our modern notions of mm. what human flourishing is. Mm. And, and that's where it gets, we're always going to come back to loyalty to the story that God has told us mm. in the scriptures about who he is and who we are. Mm. And that's just a fundamental operating point for us. Right. Yeah. And, I, and, and loyalty to, to the scriptures produces loyalty to people. I mean, I mean, the sometimes I think it's it sounds a little cold, or maybe people feel it sounds cold when we hold up the Bible because in so many in so many ways it just feels like a book with, with pieces of paper and printed, and it was written a really long time ago, and so now it feels ancient and ancient and not a hip way, um, and and cold <laughs> and cold. It's not retro. <laughs> Not, yeah. yeah, not yeah. It's not, not vintage. It's not, not vintage. vintage. Oh man. Yeah, but it, it so it, it can seem a bit cold. Like, how are you going to take something that was written this long ago and address it and and use that to address something that I'm dealing with now? But then when you read the scriptures, I mean, they're written by and about real people struggling with all the same things that we are struggling with, uh, who are loved by a real God who cares for His creation. And the more you immerse yourself in it, you find through the Spirit's work in us as individuals and as communities, the Bible isn't cold and it isn't some ancient thing that is disconnected from our particular experience, that it, uh, in fascinating and cross-cultural ways, addresses all of our deepest struggles and all of our deepest longings and does point us to like Luke, you're saying what it looks like to, to actually flourish as a human being. It doesn't mean that there's not cross-cultural work to do because the Bible doesn't mention transgender or gender dysphoria, or like it doesn't mention these particular things. So there, there's work to be done as we read through the scriptures, but it, the human experience is is described and shown to us in the scriptures in quite deep and penetrating ways.
like to make one other statement here. Maybe, gentlemen, you can agree, disagree, or develop a little further because I think what our culture, and I'm not necessarily thinking about everyone I know in Wheatland, but I'm just thinking of people in and out of our church thinking that the way our culture posits opinion is its preference. And so, of course, it's a privilege. You grew up hearing the Bible, and so you'll refer to it. And now you agree with it because you were raised that way. And so now you're making the Bible authoritative because that's what you want anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's how a lot of this culture, when you appeal to an authority that actually is suspect at the beginning, because you're just picking the people that agree with you. So there's no difference. And I, I would like to say this, and I don't know if you can tag off of this, to say that when, when we say the scriptures are authority, we actually are claiming we don't like it oftentimes. <laughs> this, is not, this is not what I would do. This, I've, I've said this before, and I've gotten in trouble for it, but, but Yahweh is not the God I would choose if I could choose from a group of gods. I've got other ones I think that would be far better for me and nicer and, and would agree with me. Mm. But this idea of treating scripture as authority just means I'm constantly not wrestling with it. It's constantly wrestling with me. And mm. to say for us in this, in this podcast that we say the scriptures are the authority is not saying we're thrilled about it at all points, not saying that we're saying that we must submit ourselves to it, which can be as uncomfortable for us as it is anybody, because that's just what it is. Does that make sense? Can we say that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the difference between trying to find something that checks all of your boxes or trying to find something that affirms all of your ideas and inclinations and submitting to something that doesn't always do that, Mm. but that in that submission, you're saying that even when it doesn't feel like this, I know that, that the scriptures, and I know that the God, that this the scriptures tell me about does know what's best for me and is able to produce what is best for me in a way that nothing else that I would submit myself to is able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Dan, what you're, what you're playing at there, not that you're playing at things and not getting to the meat at, but the okay. things, that, the things that you're pulling at yeah. the strings, the threads that you're pulling at actually get at the very heart of two ways of relating to God. One is submission to authority, and the other is some sort of struggle for autonomy, even if we Mm. don't want to label it that. Mm. And like what you describe is actual, and I think we'll get into this in our in our Genesis series in in beginning Sunday, is that um, like there is a way in which uh, what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis is this struggle between human autonomy or the proper use of authority that's a gift to humanity. And I think that's basically what you've outlined is is what you're saying, is that submission to God's authority doesn't mean that we think that is the most comfortable and the most most uh, chic or or the most uh, convenient thing, but it's this loyalty to God as King to trust that His covenant that He's made with us is a good and just and righteous covenant. And um, so, yeah, I think. I think that's part of it too, is when you start talking about um, that we, we view the scriptures as authoritative, 
that's a really, I mean, we could spend episodes upon episodes about that because that's such a, a foreign, it, that's hard for all of humanity. It doesn't matter if it's right. this age, it's not about this culture. Right. It's not about an old culture. It's not that the 1950s really had it right. And they really understood authority. And we don't know, like from the very beginning, humanity has wrestled with this. And in that regard, our culture isn't all that different from the culture that we find in Noah's day, let's say, when, when it's waxing worse and worse, as it's described there. Well, and I think that's really important to frame all of this, because I think, Keith, you said it earlier, you said, you know, we, we feel like we're going through something new. And well, back then they, and I, and I think there, there's other theologians that say this, as if somehow resurrection made a ton of sense. It was like common. Oh, yeah, I guess yeah. Was, yeah. it was as wacky then as it is now. No one. Mm-hmm. And, and these issues that we're dealing with human sin are not like, well, they finally become something progressionally that boy, Paul would have known nothing about. He would have recognized these patterns quite clearly as would of Christ. Mm-hmm. So there's something universal about this, but there's also something really difficult. One of our professors um, talks about here all the time that the perspicacity, the clearness of scripture is an overwrought doctrine. The scriptures are clear to all humans, but it's not until the Holy Spirit and a lot of work has been done to understand exactly what God is asking us to do. So it's it can be tough work. And I think what we'll show you in this podcast, even on a topic like this, which for many people is crystal clear, and it is in some regards, is really hard work to yeah. try to figure out. And it means all of us have to accept authority in our lives that we'd prefer not be there at some right. point or another in our lives. And and I think, especially on this topic of human sexuality and gender, I mean, we are not afraid to say at least here in this conversation, we're not afraid to say that we know there are people in our congregation, people who might, and we hope are listening to this podcast, who have been hurt by the church by through various, um, the, the way the church has responded to uh, fears that they might've had uh, as they responded to brothers and sisters who were struggling with human sexuality, whether they're struggling with same-sex attraction or... So, I mean, what we want to say is that we know that within the, the, the story of the church, we, we as the church, and we own that, have not always responded um, with the sort of uh, pastoral and apologetic uh, nuance that we aspire to um as as we're having this conversation so can and we, I, can we jump ahead. then keith because i think our luke you've got us headed there to the mm-hmm. other side of the parenthesis if we're sticking with that metaphor on the one side we have to chart out these theological doctrines that frame mm-hmm. us in and say this is this is as far as scripture but on the other side right we are commanded to love and so how, how do we how do we think about that? And, and again, we'll draw mm-hmm. some conclusions about maybe specifics, but just in general, how, what are some of the basic things we need to think about if we're going to have love guide this discussion? There's, there's the statements on the one mm-hmm. hand, the hard theological fact mm-hmm. on the other side. There has to be space for conversation, love, acceptance, and grace, not in a way that violates our doctrines, but at the same time, to be authentic and real and deep and meaningful. How, what mm-hmm. guides our approach to that? I think one of the first things to do is to 
as best we can eliminate the I, the false idea in our mind that anyone who struggles with gender or sexuality is somehow interested in destroying the church or the mm. or every conservative church that that yeah just this just this idea that oh if i if i struggle with my gender or if i'm the same sex attracted i also hate the church and i also want to destroy the church mm. um but we tend to do that when we lump in and sort of say like oh this group's agenda or or this this quote-unquote community we've placed every single person into one box and now they no longer are people now they're just uh, an agenda or they're just someone who it's a voting block or something like that Mm. and i i think the first thing that we have to do to to love is to see people as people who are struggling and people who are are hurting or living in confusion maybe because of the way the church has responded maybe not maybe they have no interaction with the church or maybe the church has loved them really well mm-hmm. um, but still living in lives of of confusion and hurt and brokenness and i think if that's how we view others that we see them as people who are image bearers who are in many ways hurting just like we are and struggling with different things then hopefully it's impossible to not impossible but our inclination now is to is to be loving and to be thoughtful in the way that we speak and the way we engage so you you've marked one group out there which i think when you say and i'm looking for something maybe more concrete here maybe there isn't one something between acceptance and judgmental you know to accept you know that that you don't have to accept the perspective they might have of the church but at the same time we want to be shy of judging them as dangerous to the church i'm not sure that's the right way to phrase it but but i think there's another group Tara, that we also have to and those that have very firm and clear convictions against um you know sort of modern views of gender and you say boy they're really hateful people but but there's they're also human beings that need to be understood and talked mm-hmm. to and i think the reaction yeah. goes even in the church, I've heard, you know, reaction go both ways, you know, yeah. are you one of those judgmental people that don't accept people in their sin? Right. Well, that's a really poor way of framing someone that's also wrestling with cultural shifts in their lives, mm-hmm. the world that they mm-hmm. came out of and they're coming into, how yeah. they've understood the scriptures. So it really goes all ways here. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a, it's a good point, Dan. And I think what it speaks to is that what we're really dealing with in, let, let's, let's, follow your sort of uh, illustration there and keep it inside the church for a minute, inside our own uh, church family, that what we're dealing with is um, when you, so I'm going to go back to that pastoral task and that apologetic task. If you are more um, drawn toward one of those poles, let's say, Along with being drawn, let's say, towards the apologetic task that the church ought to have in this, if you're drawn toward that apologetic task of setting out these statements and making it very, very clear and and being zealous for those things, what you also bring with being drawn towards that pole is a a particular set of fears about um, what's going on in the world and what's going on in the world, what might be going on in the church as well. If you're drawn toward the pastoral task, if you're drawn towards that end of this, you bring 
your own particular set of fears into the fellowship as well. And your fears are that the apologetic guy is going to be abusive or manipulative or just downright ugly towards um, someone who is. So, so that's what I think makes us, that's what makes the whole endeavor sort of complex is that not only do we bring um, proclivities, maybe it's based on temperament, maybe it's based on experience, maybe it's based on other things towards the apologetic or towards the pastoral. But when you go there, you also bring some fears and suspicions about the other, the other task or the, or the other approach. And what we're trying to say is both of these are absolutely necessary. And that's not because it's a middle way. (laughs) (laughs) Like, let's get that straight here, as we've tried to do with other political things, you know, as we've talked about politics. It's not because we're looking for a middle way that tiptoes between the two and, oh, so we can have (laughs) these people and these people in the same fellowship. No, it's because it seems that Jesus himself holds truth and love somehow mysteriously yeah grace and truth um he comes eating and drinking with sinners and you know all of that stuff he's holding together he's alienating sinners with the truth at the same time that he's eating with them Hmm. in love and condescension um i don't know i think that's i'm just trying to say that i think that's what makes makes this uh prone toward misunderstanding and mischaracterization. Could we say, Luke, in that? So I'm looking for something myself, just as as I think about this, something a little concrete. On the one side, I can say there are doctrines and convictions, and we'll have to figure out what those are, but I have a clear picture. On the other side, to say loving loving well, not, not necessarily accepting... Is it, could it be simply just approaching people without fear, not letting fear mm. lead and guide? Is that, is that mm-hmm. simple? too simple, or is that... No, get no. I, I mean... I think one of our, what I have seen grow and increase in not only our world in conversations, but actually within the own, within Christian fellowships is this notion of letting fear um, be the dominant um, emotion. I've been studying up, I'm going to give a little preview here of what's probably coming later in our Genesis study. But uh, I came across this idea um, that comes out of the curse uh, that God puts on Adam. And so you remember when Adam sins, God says, because you have done this, a, 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 a world that was meant to be fruitful and productive now um, is going to tend back towards becoming right the place that I found it when my spirit hovered over it. It's right, this right. vast emptiness of wasteland. It's not productive. And it's God's spirit and his love that makes it productive. Right, right. And, and, and God says to Adam, in the sweat of your face, you will um, eat bread. You, you, will, you, will, you, will, you will provide for yourself. Um, now make of this what you want, but there's been a lot of research done. Um, and there's this one article by a, a, a fella who um, is mining ancient Near Eastern origin stories. And I don't wanna get into that right now about overlap, but that phrase in the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. 
he says the in sweat in the sweat of your face it we we tend to think of that well you're just gonna have to work really hard Exertion. now yeah, yeah you're gonna have to exert yourself and before before the fall things just came easily you know it, it grew mm. on trees or whatever but and now after the fall it's going to be hard and there's going to be thorns and thistles but actually he traces that phrase in the sweat of your face to mean there will always be fear of insufficiency so oh. so that the sweat of your face was a very you're common sweating ancient. a bad crop you're not right sweating to make right a good crop. right exactly that it's mm. it, literally it's fear it's fear in all sorts of ways fears that you won't be able to get um, enough food to eat fear of this fear of that fear of the other and that the sweat of your face was actually a very common ancient near eastern phrase for being fearful of something wow. and and so anyway i just feel like it's really important for us to recognize that fear is part of the curse uh, of what it means to be in a world that is broken by sin um so I maybe that's like a I, helpful way to do it keith did you yeah, that. I I agree. I, I'm glad you said it that way because that's that's really helpful and good approaching people without fear. Because you're the historian, I'm not. But it seems like when fear is the driver throughout history, that what Nothing ends up happening, <laughs> what ends up happening is people get hurt, and and fear is eventually used as the reason uh, to hurt people and harm people. Um, whether that's the outward reason. I think internally, it seems sure. like when you're when you're afraid of something happening or someone doing something, then eventually we tend to hurt people. And I think it's because fear makes us ask all these what if questions over and over again. Oh, well, what if they do this? What if what if this happens culturally? What if what if? And now, rather than trying to love someone and bring grace and truth in someone's life and that being the driver, now it's to put out all the potential fires that could happen. Mm -hmm around me um if if i allow this to happen or or if i don't say this i need to come out really strongly here i need to or i need to be quiet about this because if i don't what if what if hmm. and so and that becomes an exhausting endeavor in a, in a sense i think fear is overwhelming and exhausting for the person who is fearful so hmm. if I, when i'm fearful when i'm fearful about my, the future of my kids or about my family I mean, it is exhausting because you can't do anything about it. Right, right. Like you can't, but right. the thing you can do is you can love people and approach people with grace and truth. What I like about that too, is it doesn't say anything about diluting convictions mm -mm. about what's true. Cause I think that's where our culture would say, if you really love someone, you'll come to them with no convictions and no, and then people say, oh, if you have a conviction, you've already thought about this, then you don't love me. And I think we can't accept that narrative, right? I mean, if we're saying this and we're saying, Truth is still true, but I refuse to come to you with a fear that you're any danger to that truth mm -hmm. or to my faith. And, and it doesn't mean that the church doesn't have to be protective at points because as a flock and, and pastor specifically right. are tasked with caring for the flock. But I like that because I think it does create space to say you, you should stand firm on your convictions. No one's forget what this culture says. You love someone perfectly well by being convinced, convinced of the truth of Christ, but you do it without fear. I think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. And I, I think um, I'm reminded of the song of Zechariah in the New Testament, like the whole promise to Abraham as Zechariah sings at John the Baptist's birth as forerunner of the Messiah is, and that we, we will worship him without fear, 
that that our worship um, will be without fear. And I think that's a really wonderful way to think about the act of worship that we do, how important our gathered worship is to all of this, is that when we come together and worship as God's people, like you were mentioning before, Dan, that you're learning from your brothers and sisters who are beside you and you hear their voices, like part of what we're doing when we worship Jesus as king, you can't worship Jesus without king. You can't truly like right. grasp right. what you're doing and then still um, be quit quivering with fear at X, Y, or Z. You can be, you can be thoughtful. You can be all that, but like fear itself at other pretend Kings and pretend powers just won't do mm. when you are worshiping King Jesus for who he is and what, what he's doing in his world and in his people. I, maybe we could say, if you had the picture drawn in your head with the these boundaries, one of theological conviction, one of love, the in-between space is called the fear of the Lord. Um, mm. And I and I do say, and I probably said it ad nauseum, so I apologize, but I, I do think there's great truth to the fact that if you fear God, you have reason to fear nothing else. And I, mm -hmm. I think maybe because we've forgotten that, that, that he is who he is, that we've mm -hmm. turned other things into fearful things, peoples and ideas, and mm -hmm. that recognize this is King Jesus. He will, he will certainly complete yeah. what he started. Yeah. And, I, and, and, uh, I am resisting with every fiber of my being <laughs> reading my Philip Schaff comment again here, but um, Keith has heard it enough. He's nauseated by it now. It's a beautiful so. quote, by the way. I yeah, don't think repeating yeah. it hurts it, but we Well, didn't. for those of you that are interested, it'll be on the inside cover of the Order okay. of Worship. And on the Sunday. last uh, cross-reference podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and emblazoned above his door. That's right. <laughs> My new tattoo. The tattoo. Um, yeah. don't, don't ask where that is. Don't ask for it. <laughs> you don't want to see it. So if we've got a couple minutes here, let me round out this way, maybe. Um, and I think, Keith, you started this way, so maybe you can tie into this, that this is, this is a struggle in one way or another for everyone. Um, not, not, not gender dysphoria or something like that, but let's say being a male in a culture where masculinity is, has certain, you know, things attached to it, being a female where you've been second-class citizens at different times in our histories. Um, um, in some way, it, it, are we talking about this because we really are struggling throughout the church? I mean, is this something that really is impacting all of us that we feel this is something that's that important? Yes. Yeah. Because like you said, I, as, as a man, I, I wrestle and struggle with what does it mean to be a faithful man? What does it mean to be a faithful man? And then all the other things that come for me, particularly being a man is being a husband and being a father. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a deep struggle to, to know what does that look like? And, and what does it look like to, to help through the work of the spirit shape Lincoln into being, into being a faithful man and a, and a biblical man that looks like Jesus. And, and to raise up daughters who who grow to look like Jesus as well. I, it's it's a deep struggle for all of us. Um, whether we're like you said, whether we're struggling with gender dysphoria or not, this touches every single one of us. And mm. and for me to try to approach that, to approach myself and the way that I live and my children, the way they grow up without fear, is, I mean, it, if I'm honest, it's a, it's a big struggle to not do right. that. Right. without to not do that as fear being the driving the driving uh force or maybe not the driving force but something that's continually 
poking at me and poking at me to not be afraid. So for me, even in these episodes to, to wrestle and hear you guys challenge and lovingly confront me to, to more and more understand what it looks like to be uh, male or female and bear the image of God, I think will be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, Luke, we, we've, we've, there's one um, third rail in this. Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. They're all third rails. But um, in this conversation, we've not talked about that sexuality because we're talking mm-hmm. about gender as identity. But mm-hmm. even, even, if, even if you're not struggling with your gender identity in some way, sexuality itself is probably one of God's greatest oh, yeah. gifts and most powerful yeah. experiences. And so therefore, mm-hmm. if we're dealing with gender, we're also at some point dealing with yeah. sexuality. I mean, these two things are right. in, in, inextricably linked. Right. No, exactly. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I was just sitting here as Keith was talking, my mind was wandering. Sorry, Keith. No, not at all. <laughs> it rarely happens. Uh, Keith, no, what but I understand. He, he, he said something that made me think that um, as he was talking about what it means to be male and, and, and what it means to be female and what it means to raise children who are engendered <laughs> as a gift from God. Mm-hmm. Um I, I was thinking, you know, part of what the, the message we hear in the culture is that our sexuality is at the very core of our identity. Mm-hmm. And I think why that is so powerful, why that's such a powerful narrative is because there is so much truth there. Mm-hmm. The fact that in the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. Like those two, the gen, being engendered has something very close to, uh, there's something about being engendered that is very close to the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. I'm not saying I understand all that. There's a lot of mystery there. There's a lot of work that I need to do. I'm not an expert in that. But as I read the narrative, like when God says he he created them in the, well, I I should just read it uh, there in chapter one. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Like right away to be created in the image of God is to be engendered. And so uh, there's something compelling about what uh, the culture is saying about sexuality being at the very core of our identity. But how is it at the core is the question. So, and I think that's where I hope for us to go in this podcast series. It's not... We might quibble about where it is at the center of identity, but what we're going to say is, how is it at the center of our identity? Mm. How, how is it really what it means to be created in the image of God? And I think one other proof that it that the culture is onto something, although they might be you you can be close, be so close and so far away. You know, we've talked about navigating. Um, uh, if, if you're, I won't use boating, Dan, I'll use aeronautical <laughs> navigation. You. If you're off by, if you're, if you've got a long distance to go and your heading is off by a few degrees, mm. you, you end up as lost as if it were off by, you know, anyway, you understand all that, but think about it this way. When someone's sexuality has been violated, like forget what you believe about gender and and where and sexual identity all that when someone's 
sexuality has been violated, when it's been trespassed by uh, a predator or something like that. There is no one who argues that that shouldn't be a big deal, that if, if your sexuality hasn't been violated, or if, yeah, if you don't struggle with identity and, and like deep life stuff from being having your sexuality uh, trespassed and, and violated in a harmful way, like we all recognize what a deep trauma, <laughs> sexual trauma is. And, and like you can break an arm and you're going to be, you know, that there's some trauma there. It's going to hurt. But when you're trespassed with regards to your human sexuality, everything is out of kilter. Mm. It affects everything. Mm. Um, so anyway, to me, that's just interesting that our culture is onto something, but it, I think it's a few degrees off. And mm. so in the end, what happens is uh, you wind up in, in the wrong place at the end. I don't well, know. This, this, no, that's great. And I think these are all the, I, I hope, those are listening here that this introduction really is just sort of planting the seeds that all have to be harvested somewhere mm-hmm. yeah. along the line, this conversation. Whether- We're really great at starting <laughs> yeah, ideas. Can Oops, we look at that. I'm busy for the next six months, yeah, exactly. um, but, but we want to, and I, I want to say from here, this is just the beginning. We, we have, yeah. uh, we're, we're thinking numbers and watching topics as we, as we go, we're thinking mm-hmm. four or five podcasts, mm-hmm. but we're not sure. I think as topics come. And one thing I would ask in this is if you are listening and have any feedback about issues that are particularly relevant to you, mm-hmm. important questions you have, um, you know, get in touch with any one of us. Uh, you'll find emails in the back of the bulletin, I believe, for our pastors. I'm an elder. I believe that my contact is there somewhere. Um, so please do that. And that may help shape and guide. We may think, hey, here's the five things I want to touch on. It turns out our people need something different. We want to be right. able to shift to that. So yeah. So with that in mind, um, please, please be engaged um, as you listen to these. And for the two of you, I want to say a hearty thank you, because I, as I've talked to people, this is um, difficult to put yourselves out there as pastors, um, to know that you're leading the church in this way and having to say something that's humble and kind and loving, but with theological conviction, the way we're describing it is something that's going to be tough to do. It's going to be, it's going to yeah. take some, it's going to take some sweat of the face as Lucas. Uh. And I don't mean effort. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks, you. Dan. I was really looking forward to, to the weekend until now. Now, <laughs> added enjoy this existential <laughs> dread onto <laughs> the next uh, six weeks or however it takes <laughs> through this. Well, we'll do that and they'll keep coming out. Um, so again, gentlemen, thank you for this. This has been uh, two pastors and a professor. We'll see you on the next one. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.